I know many of you would love to go downstairs and, uh, I don't know, eat goldfish and drink Kool-Aid. Do you have Kool-Aid down there or something? I don't know. They had Kool-Aid when I was a kid. I don't know if that's still a thing. Revelation chapter 5, if you've got your Bible, we're going to be there. I, I will tell you that um, we're going to read uh, some other passages this morning, but you don't necessarily have to turn there. Uh, but uh, we're going to walk through this chapter as we continue in our study. Obviously, a, a study through the book of Revelation that we've entitled, Get Ready. And the reason for that title is simply because of what we ha- have just kind of labeled as our theme verse. It comes from chapter 1, verse 3, and it should be on the screens for you to, to look on as I read it. John's kind of summing up what this book is going to be, what this letter is going to be. And he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. The question you're probably wondering there, what is near? What is coming? What, what is the time that is near? Well, we've already seen as we've walked through the first four chapters of this great book, we have seen that John here is reminding believers that Jesus is returning, and he's returning soon. That's why he says the time is near. And so we've simply said that we need to get ready. I mean, think about this. With that idea, with that call, we also see here that it's a warning. It's a warning to everyone to be ready when he returns. Not just that he is coming and to be expectant, but to be ready ourselves personally when he returns. And so the emphasis that this warning places on Jesus raises some questions. It raises a major question, in fact, a question that would necessitate an answer. Uh, It's a question that we need to have an answer for, and that is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Why should I be ready for this one who is called Jesus? Well, the answer we give to this question really will determine a whole lot about what we will believe and what we will understand from what comes after this first verse here, this first section of the book of Revelation. So who is Jesus? Do you know there's all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is? I bet if we went around in this room, we would have some varying opinions and varying beliefs regarding the historicity or the divinity of Jesus Christ. Came across some research this week. It's amazing what you can do when you just type, type some words into Google and, and, and things will pop up. And I found this Barner research study that was conducted back in 2015. This study uh, revealed some real surprising insights about who Jesus is or really what people believe about Jesus and who he was. This study showed that 92% of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. So that's encouraging that the vast majority of Americans, at least those polled in this study, believe that Jesus was a real person. Questions, though, surrounding his divinity reveal that Americans were less confident he was God and sinless. Listen to these numbers. Only 56% of the, of the adults polled here believe that Jesus is God. Only 56%, just a little over half of the people in America would say that Jesus is God, while 26% believe he was only a spiritual leader. And so you've got there barely half saying that he's God and over a quarter of the people saying he was nothing more than a spiritual leader, nothing more than a good teacher, nothing more than a movement leader. On the question of Jesus' sinlessness, 24% believe he sinned just like any other person, while only 31% strongly disagreed with that statement. 
So 24% is saying he's just like all of us. He has sinned. He struggles with temptation. He, he, he's, he's, he, he says one thing and he does another, just like the rest of us. And then only less than a third would say, no, he's absolutely sinless. And so this morning, I want you to wrestle with another question, if you will. Does it really matter? Does it really matter what we believe about Jesus? Does it matter what we believe about his life and his death? Does it matter whether or not he was sinless? Or does it matter whether or not he committed sin and was sinful like you and I? I think here the best answer to these questions is to simply allow the Word of God to speak. And so I want, to, I want you to listen to what the Word of God says, specifically from the book of Hebrews. These verses should be on the screen for you. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, the Bible says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then if we were to move over to chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So what does the Bible say about who Jesus is? The Bible clearly says here and clearly presents here Jesus as the Son of God. He is fully divine, fully God. He is the eternal Son of God who came to earth fully human as a man in order to offer himself as a sacrifice, as a pure sacrifice for the sin of mankind. That's who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. Therefore, just based on these verses, we, we see here that Jesus is worthy of our worship. This morning you may wonder, why do we sing songs to Jesus? Why do we sing and make, try to make much of his name? It's because of who he is and it's because of what he has accomplished. And today as we walk through the fifth chapter here in the book of Revelation, we will discover that both heaven and earth worship the Lamb. They worship Jesus as Redeemer. And so if you will... Look with me in Revelation chapter 5, and let's just walk through these 14 verses, reading through these first 14 verses, and then we're going to unpack it. Look what John has to say. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing 
as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would just take these words from this chapter. And over the next few minutes, as we seek to understand them better, I pray that you would speak into our hearts and speak in our lives. God, help us to be able to see. Give us a, a vision very similar to what John would have had. We would be able to peek into the throne room of heaven and catch a glimpse of the glory being unfolded in this scene. God, help us to see our Savior, our Redeemer, high and lifted up and worthy of our total worship. So bless us. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5 here is an amazing chapter. The focus moves from God the Father enthroned in heaven and surrounded by these adoring and worshiping elders and living creatures that we saw in chapter 4. And, and now it's moving to the Lamb who alone is worthy to open the scroll of destiny. The worship of God for his role in creation in chapter 4 is giving way to the worship of the Lamb for his work in redemption now. And so John sees a scroll in the right hand of the Father as you look there in verse 1, and, and he sees him holding this scroll. And on this scroll, we, he notices that it's overflowing. It's filled with words inside and outside. There are seven seals binding it, ensuring the secrecy of its decrees. The scroll, as we're going to see as we walk through the next several chapters, we're going to see that this scroll contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. And we're going to discover in chapter 6, in fact, next Sunday, Lord willing, that the events accompanying the opening of these seals and their subsequent judgments are preliminary events that lead up to the unfolding drama of the eschaton or the end event and the completion of God's divine plan. So John sees... God the Father, seated on the throne, holding this scroll. And immediately, a mighty angel, the Bible tells us, began to proclaim, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to break its seals? It's almost like a challenge goes out in the throne room. A challenge goes out even throughout heaven and on earth. And, and we learn that no one was found worthy to open the scrolls. It's an amazing thing. John hears this. He sees that no one is stepping up to, 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 uh, to open the scroll and to begin to unfold all of God's 
divine plan. And so John begins to weep. Begins to weep, I believe, because of what he understands this scroll is going to be and what it, the purpose of it is. He begins to weep because he understands that when Jesus in chapter 4, verse 1 says, come up here and, and I will show you what must take place, what will take place, he begins to understand that this promise, this calling, this, this opportunity to see what God is going to do is about to be thwarted. And he immediately understands that unless the seals are broken and unless the scroll is unrolled, the plan of God God for the universe is going to be frustrated. And so John wept at the prospect of an indefinite postponement of God's final and decisive action. You see, the universe itself is incapable, morally incapable of affecting its own destiny. It needs God. In fact, we've already sung about, sang this morning about God being the ancient of days, God being the one who holds history in his hand. That is the God that we serve. And thankfully, as we look at the way this world is and the sin that is so pervasive, the sin that is increasing, we look forward to the day that Jesus will return. Jesus will bring an end to sin. And so with the prospect of that not ever happening, it would lead all of us to weep. That's where John finds himself. Until one of the elders touches him and counsels him not to weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed over sin and death and is therefore qualified to open the scroll. So John is beside himself. John is weeping over the prospect of of nothing ever being done to bring an end to sin's tyranny until he's reminded that Jesus is worthy. George Eldon Ladd in his commentary points out a very simple but profound biblical truth on this note. He says, apart from the person and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, history is an enigma. Think about that. Apart from Jesus, apart from his atoning, redeeming work on the cross, history is an enigma. History has no purpose. It has no meaning. When you think about where we have come in the West and our cultural advancements, and when you think about all that's happened for, for centuries after Christ, for centuries through the early church fathers, even up to Augustine, we see that, that, the, that the, the, the gospel, that the Christian view of history really, really influenced how we believed and how we looked at history itself. Seeing that God had an, an ordained divine goal connected to the redemptive work of God throughout history. It colored, it influenced Western thought. Then the Enlightenment took place. Then things began to change and philosophers began to reject the Christian view. Cultural began, culture began to embrace this viewpoint that the Christian viewpoint needed to be rejected. And so they no longer believed that there was God's purpose or God's ordaining movement in history. These folks believe in evolutional theory. They believe in an evolutional understanding of everything in this world. And so from that mindset, everything should be getting better, right? We kind of evolve into a better species. We evolve into a, a better culture. And yet when you look out over the landscape of culture and you look at history, we see that there's been no progression, but things have become worse. Especially in the 20th century, we saw uh, more war, more death, more murder, more genocide than any other century combined. Suffering is ever on the rise. And so the result has been that the perspective and attitude of the secularist has become increasingly more pessimistic, and rightly so when you look at history, devoid of an understanding of God's sovereignty and God's goodness and God's redemption, there is nothing but pessimism to see. 
Without God, and specifically Jesus Christ, history has no reference point. And so we see here that Jesus gives history its meaning. And so if it gives history its meaning, it gives your life its meaning. It gives my life its meaning. So John, verse 5, hears of the Lion of Judah. But in verse 6, when he turns, he doesn't see the Lion of Judah. Who does he see? He sees the Lamb, standing as if slaughtered. Jesus, as the lion, is positionally qualified to open the scroll. But here's what I want you to see about the lamb. The lamb is sacrificially qualified to open the scroll. Jesus offered himself as the substitute in humanity's place. And so the lamb here bears the marks of being slaughtered. And the Bible tells us that he has seven horns. They speak of perfect power. He has seven eyes, which refer to unlimited wisdom and penetrating insight. So here, as the lamb takes the scroll from the father, what do the elders do? They fall down, prostrating themselves and lifting their voices in a new song for his redemptive work. This morning we sang probably some new songs that you've never heard before. I know there's a few that I've never heard before. What is our natural tendency when we hear a song in worship that's new? I don't know how to sing that, right? I don't know how to do that. I'm just going to stand here and listen. And that's fine. I usually listen at least first verse or so and kind of get the, the rhythm and Thankfully, a lot of songs these days are, are kind of written for dummies like me that have no voice, no ability to sing, and so you can just sing it. It's, it's easy. It's simple. But what is our natural tendency when we hear a new song? Well, I, I can't sing that. It's new. Yeah, you can. Just try. Here, here's another thing, though. Why do we push back against new things? What we see right here in the throne room of heaven is that when they begin to see some new activity or, or, or an insight into God's redemption and his work on the cross and what it means for mankind, they can't help but sing something new. In chapter 4, they're singing of the creation of God, and they're glorifying the Father for his activity in creation. So that was one type of song. Now in chapter 5, they move in, and they're beginning to look at the salvation and the redemption of the Lamb, and they sing and a new song to the Lord because of that activity. So that's that's why we sing. Bless God, we don't have to sing the same old song over and over and over so that it's rote and mundane and nothing but being in a rut. We have a song to sing and a new song to sing. That's for free. Just thought you needed that this morning. It's an amazing picture here. As all of these creatures of heaven begin to just join their voices together and worship the Lamb. In fact, in verses 11 and 12, the Bible tells us that myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, in other, ways, in, other, in other words, that's a way for John to just tell us that countless angels in heaven joined in with the four living creatures and the 24 elders in glorifying and magnifying the name of Jesus Christ. They join in this joyous celebration. And then in verse 13, those myriads of myriads and those 24 elders and those four living creatures are joined now with every other creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they collectively join together, worshiping the Father, worshiping the Son in unrestrained worship. What we have here in this chapter is the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most profound picture of worship in all of Scripture as everything in creation stands to the glory of of the Father and of the Son. And this morning, as 
Jesus' church, we have an opportunity to worship, to join in that sort of worship. You may be thinking probably like I'm thinking, man, I didn't really have that sort of heart this morning. As I was singing those songs, I was just kind of going through the motions. It's okay for now. God meets us where we are, and he helps us understand a little bit more about himself and a little bit more about his gospel and a little bit more about his grace. And the more we grow in him, the more we appreciate him, the more we appreciate him, the more we want to make much of him, the more we want to make much of him, the more we want to bring glory and honor to his name. Why do the angels, though, why do these creatures of earth worship the lamb? They worship him because he's worthy. That's what they've said. Worthy are you. Worthy are you. Worthy is the Lamb. He's worthy. We worship the Lamb today because He is worthy. So what is it that qualifies the Lamb to be worthy? Well, obviously the fact and the reality that Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, qualifies Him for worship. I think we can all agree to that, right? He is God. Jesus is God. He's not just a good moral guy. He's not a spiritual leader. He's not a guru. He's not some sort of religious teacher. No, He is the very Son of God. Hebrews that we read earlier says He is the radiance of God, the exact imprint of His nature. God is God. Jesus is God. God, and we worship him. That's why he's worthy. But there's more to it than just that. The worship of the Lamb in Revelation 5 does not stem from his essential being as God. I want you to notice that. The worthiness of the Lamb being worshipped here in chapter 5 stems from his great act of redemption. See, they're worshipping God the Father because he's created all that there is in chapter 4. Chapter 5, they're worshipping God the Son, the Lamb of God, because of his great act of redemption. Let me give you three reasons the Lamb is worthy this morning. And we're going to finish up right on time, about 3.44 this afternoon. Football's over. You don't have anything else to do today except watch the XFL, which I tried to watch yesterday. I really couldn't get into it. It's just something different. It's that new thing, you know. We don't like new things. Reason number one, why is the lamb worthy? He was slain. Look at verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. The reason the lamb is worthy is because he was slaughtered. I mean, think about what's going on here. The four living creatures and these 24 elders that we've already seen in chapter 4, they begin to sing this new song before the Lamb. Every new act, as I said earlier, every new act of mercy calls forth a new song of gratitude, (coughs) a new song of praise to the Lord. And so they sang to the Father, worshiping his creation acts. Now they're singing worship of the land for his redemptive acts. This song here reminds heaven and earth of the historical fact of Jesus's sacrificial death. He was slain. He was slaughtered. Reminds us that the cross was not just a beautiful fairy tale. It's not just an emotional type story to to tug at our emotions and and to move us to a place of warm fuzziness. That's not what the cross is about. That's not what the gospel declares. The cross is a historical fact. As Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, listen to what he says in verses 3 through 8. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That means they've already died. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul here is making a case for the resurrection. He's making a case for the fact that Jesus is not dead, but he's raised from the dead. He is alive, and he sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Well, you can only have a resurrection if you first have a crucifixion. So Jesus was slain. It's a historical, biblical fact. He literally died. That raises a follow-up question. Why? Why did Jesus die? Romans 6.23 would tell us that sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. What you earn because of your sin is death. It is the just judgment, the just punishment for man's sin. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, when death entered history there in Eden, just as God had told Adam it would, it entered because of their disobedience by eating from that tree. But despite Adam's rebellion, the beauty of, uh, of Genesis 3 is that God demonstrated his love by sacrificing an animal on his behalf and covering his shame. I, I love that picture. I talk about it often. Because as as Adam and Eve are hiding from God, God is pursuing. As Adam and Eve are, are, are trying to deal with their shame, God comes in his grace and he offers a covering for them. It is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of the sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus. So sacrifice and blood became the atonement for man's sin from then on. Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So that first shedding of blood was further pictured in the Passover lamb there in Exodus. And then throughout the Levitical law, as they sinned, they would bring an offering of sacrifice to the Lord to atone for their sin. None of it was ever sufficient, but all of it pointed to Jesus, who would once and for all fulfill the requirements of the law. Again, Hebrews chapter 9. Hear what the writer says in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered, not into holy places made with his hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus was slain. The picture here brings us back in in our understanding of what was being foretold and, and, and pictured in Isaiah chapter 53. It was his blood that was shed on the cross for forgiveness of sins. Therefore, when we think about the reason Jesus is worthy of our worship, it's because he was slain for our sins. Brings us to a second thing. He ransomed people for God. That's what it says in verse 9. 
You were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. You purchased people for God. This added detail here in the angel's song provides the interpretation of this historical fact. It gives us the reason behind the sacrifice. Jesus shed his blood on the cross in order to atone for sin. There was no other reason than that. And so his blood pays the penalty that's required. It satisfies the wrath of God against sin. If we were to die, and unfortunately many, many do, without our confession of sin, our repentance of sin, our turning to Christ in faith, if we die without his forgiveness, we stand before a holy God who will justly condemn us for our sin and pour his wrath out upon us for all of eternity. But thankfully, Jesus stood in your place and in my place and bore that wrath of the Father, thus ransoming people to God. His work there satisfies the wrath. It emancipates a person from slavery to sin to a new status as a child of God. No longer a slave to sin, you're a son of God. John describes this act of propitiation or putting to account in his epistle. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's not just for us, it's for everyone. That's why we take the gospel to the nations, as well as to our neighbors. That's why we want to invite people to friend day. That's why we want to invest in their lives personally on an ongoing basis. It's because we understand that what Jesus did on the cross was for you, it was for me, and it was for everyone. His act there is put to our account. His righteousness is put on us. It's put in our account so that now we can stand before the Father righteous and clean, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. Jesus gave his life, and he gave his life, which was sinless for us. No other sacrifice would have been acceptable. See, we need and we must believe in the sinlessness of Jesus. I've heard, I know this is common throughout our country. It's common in other places around the world where where the church has forsaken the gospel, when the church no longer believes the Bible. But I've heard even in our own area here where there there is, I guess, preachers, if you call them that, teaching a gospel that does not believe in the sinlessness of Jesus. If you don't have a Jesus that is sinless, you do not have a gospel, which means you have no redemption, which means you're still in your sins and you are headed to hell. And so here's my encouragement to you. When you hear any teaching, any person, doesn't matter who they are, if they ever lead you to believe and teach you that Jesus was not perfect, but he's just like you and I, he's just a buddy like you and I, you run from that because it's nothing more than a lie from hell. Jesus was sinless, tempted in all manners as we are, and yet without sin, as we read earlier. There's a third reason that we worship the lamb, that he's worthy. And that is, he made them a kingdom and priests to God. The lamb, obviously, has ransomed people for God from all the nations of the earth for the purpose of making them a collective kingdom and individually priests to God. This is what the the movement is is saying here in this verse. This is the result of this historical fact of Jesus' death. He, he, He offers his life, he purchases us, And then he puts us, brings us into his kingdom and makes us priests to God. I love how Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13, he says, 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see here, believers are citizens in the kingdom, and the kingdom has a king. His name is Jesus. So we are his called out. We are his redeemed people. We've been transferred from the domains of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. We've been made into a people, a kingdom, but we're also priests to God. And as priests, we serve him in worship and we serve him in our witness. We serve him by participating in the universal mission to our neighbors and to the nations. Here's what we need to understand about this. We are not saved just to kind of hang around for a few years until we get to go to heaven. We are saved, we are redeemed, we are brought into the kingdom and made priests to God for a purpose, and that is the gospel. Otherwise, why are we here? Why doesn't Jesus just save us from our sin and immediately take us up to heaven? It's because we're here, his ambassadors, as Paul would say, contending with others, beseeching them, calling them, wooing them, doing everything we can to encourage them to believe on Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's what we're here for. And in doing so, it brings glory to the Lamb. So with that said, let me give you three conclusions of this worthiness. This is short, I promise. Number one, if redemption excites those in heaven who have never experienced, and I hope you've seen this as we've read through chapter 5, that all of heaven is in uproar over the redemption that Jesus has won. So if they're excited about it in heaven, who've never experienced grace, believers transformed by it should be overjoyed to the glory of Jesus. Think about that for a second. Those in heaven who've never experienced it. In fact, the Bible would tell us that angels are longing to understand this gospel, longing to understand what it means to be in this redemptive relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They've never experienced it, and yet they are thrilled over the idea. If that's the case for them, we ought to be overjoyed. When you start thinking about, good night, My life was an absolute mess until I met Jesus. Man, where would I be today if it wasn't for Jesus? We need to remember who we were. We need to remember what we were like. We need to be conscious of what we could become or would have become if it wasn't for Jesus. Therefore, overjoyed to the glory of Jesus in our lives. Number two, if redemption causes heaven to exclaim the glory of God, Believers should be moved to spread the fame of Jesus. The angels are saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and honor and glory and might. I mean, they're just exclaiming the glory of God. So why is it that we as Christians, as believers who've experienced the redemption of Jesus, why is it that we are so hesitant to spread the fame of Jesus. I, I get it, man, I understand it. I understand the, 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 the tendency or the, the pullback, but I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to get out there too far. Why do we care about that? As long as we're doing it in a gracious, kind, gentle manner, obviously I'm not advocating beating people over the head with the Bible unless it works, but I don't know if it works. Just be excited about Jesus because he's done so much for you. Thirdly, If redemption creates an anticipation for the consummation of it in heaven, believers should long for and be ready for the return of Jesus today. John, as he's in this 
heavenly throne room scene, he's longing for the consummation. In fact, we're going to get into chapter 6, and we're going to see that the, the martyrs who are under the throne of heaven are saying, Lord, how much longer, how much longer till this thing comes to an end? They're anticipating, they're longing for, they're desiring to see the redemptive work of Jesus come to a final end, that sin would be dealt with fully and finally. And yet today in this world and the worlds in which we live, the circles we run into, what do we really have our eyes on? Everything but that. Are you living in light of eternity? Is every day when you get up and every day when you go through your routine, every day when you do what you do, are you thinking this could be the day? This could be the moment. I, I, I may leave this life. I may die today. A family member may die today. A friend may die today. Or Jesus may split the eastern sky. There's this imminency that we need to be holding intention in our lives. Do we anticipate and long for the consummation of Jesus' redemption? I think the reason sometimes this is not true of us is because of how we view the Lord Jesus. So what does he look like to you? Is he your big brother? Is he your friend? And, and thankfully, the Bible tells us he's a friend of sinners, but is he just a buddy, a friend, a kind of, I guess we don't say homie anymore, but that was a slang term back in the day we would use, especially when I was in student ministry. Some of you, Jesus is nothing more than a genie for you. When you get in a jam, you rub the lamp. Jesus, I need you. Would you pop out and give me three wishes, and then please go back in the lamp real quick because I don't want you to kind of rule my life, but I want you to give me something when I'm in a fix. Is that your Jesus this morning? I believe too often our view of Christ is too small. Rather than seem as glorious and sovereign, as worthy of all the worship of heaven and earth and under the earth, because of his sacrifice, we've reduced him to a picture on a wall or a good man in an old story. In reality, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is worthy of our deepest praise. He's worthy of our deepest gratitude for his sovereignty and great victory that's been won for us on the cross. He's worthy of worship for his blood that was shed on Calvary. I mean, who else has died in your place and who else has died for you? He's worthy of glory for rising from the dead. And he is worthy of our adoration for his gracious invitation to sinners to come to him. I mean, he loves you even though you're a mess. He loves you in spite of yourself. That's who Jesus is. And if we would catch that and keep that in our forefront of our minds and in the front of our faces, then when we think of who Jesus is and when we're on our knees praying and when we're gathered together collectively and we're singing together, it will bring some joy to your song, some joy to your prayers, and some joy to the way you live your life when you understand what he has done for you. What is your view of Jesus? What is your relationship with him today? Perhaps you're a sinner in need of grace and forgiveness. I remember those days. I remember those days being nothing more than a religious college kid, religious high school kid. I remember feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit in my life saying, you need to come to me. You need because you're in your sins. I remember battling. I remember standing in invitations and with the church I grew up in, strong evangelistically, a strong appeal to the, for the gospel for you to respond. And I remember many times saying, I need to go, but I don't want to go. I'm afraid of what others are going to say. And finally, one day, God just brought me to the end of myself and changed my life. 
So are you a sinner in need of grace and forgiveness? I will say, come to him and you will find it. Are you a believer in need of a better and more full view of the Lord Jesus? You're just kind of walking at a guilty distance. You're just kind of going through the motions spiritually. Come to him this morning. Come to him and you will find it. The good news in all of this is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. God loves you. I say this every Sunday. The good news that the Bible tells us is that God loves you because he created you. You're not special because you've done something. You're not special because you have something. I mean, God doesn't care what you bring to him other than your sin. You can't appeal to him or, or kind of uh, um, buy him off by some sort of service or some sort of gift. None of that works. He loves you as you are for who you are. That's because he created you for a relationship with himself. The bad news is, is you're broken, and he knows that, and yet he still loves you. He knows that sin's messed you up. He knows that sin's messed your relationships up. He knows that sin is continuing to mess you up, and it will continue to do so. And yet he still says, come to me. That's the great news of the gospel, is that despite who you are, despite what you've done, he loves you, he created you, and he's calling you to himself. And all you have to do is say this, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. Become the Lord and Savior of my life. You say, well, that's, is that some sort of special word? Absolutely not. It has nothing to do with the words necessarily. It has everything to do with your attitude and your understanding of sin and salvation. I can't bring anything to the to the cross, but my sin. But when I leave the cross, I have everything that heaven has to offer, namely a relationship with Jesus. So where are you at today? You a sinner needs forgiveness? You a believer that needs encouragement? Maybe your life with the Lord has never been better. I pray today this just kind of fans the flame for you. And you're like, man, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Thank you for the redemptive work in my Life. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. Katie's going to come and sing a song, and, and we'll sing along with her. But this is a time for us to respond in faith and in repentance. So let's pray. And if God is speaking in your life, I want to encourage you to respond. Lord Jesus, this morning, we're just grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for all that you've done for us. Where would we be? without the cross. We know where we would be. Dead in our sins and trespasses, as Paul says. Separated from God. Aliens. Hostile. Haters of God. But Lord, we're grateful this morning that you've not left us to ourselves. You've not left us without hope. You've not left us to try to find a way ourselves, just as Adam and Eve in the garden who were hiding from you, running from you, rebelling from you. You have pursued us, and you've offered the sacrifice to pay our penalty, ransoming us back to yourself. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak at the hearts of those sitting here. God, I pray for adult men. I pray for adult women who today need to give their life to Jesus. I pray that you give them boldness and courage to say no to sin and yes to Jesus today. God, I pray the same for teenagers and for children. Many of our children are talking and asking questions and having great conversations in regards to the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to a place of faith and repentance. Lord, for believers in this room, which is the vast majority, I would say, I pray that we'd have a deeper appreciation for your goodness, a deeper appreciation for what you've done for us. 
God, help us to love you more intimately, more passionately, more supremely in our lives. God, that it would affect how we live and how we interact with people and how, what we do with our money, what we do with our time, what we do with our service and our talents. And God, that we would just be so captivated by who you are and what you've done that we just give you ourselves in worship and adoration. God, bless us. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear and a heart to receive what the Spirit is saying this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Won't you stand?